So welcome, welcome. This is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road. Um, we're in a series on identity, identity in Christ. And we're going to be talking about family, God's family, adoption into God's family. And so let me pray and then we'll get to work. Heavenly Father, you are so good. We truly are privileged that we can call you Father. Thank you for every person who's in this place. This is a holy place because you are here and wherever you are is holy. And now, and now we are going to be nourished by the truth of your word. Um, so feed us. Uh, once again I ask, help me get out of the way so that what you once said gets said. Um, nothing more, nothing less, um, so that we might become like you, like you. Thank you that all of this has taken place because of your son, our elder brother, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. amen. Well, I told you about uh, two months ago, uh, both of my parents in Tulsa happened to be hospitalized uh, and I spent some time to support them. Uh, my dad had this infection that affected his mind, and for like a few days, he was lost. Um, I really had a hard time figuring out, uh, you know, where he was and what was going on. And when the medicine started to do its work, why, um, uh, it was so much better. And so here was a picture of the two of us there in the hospital. That's a picture of our nostrils. Um, <laughs> Uh, and um, I'm still working on that selfie thing, but uh, but so I just got to hang out with him for several several days, and uh, but not long after that picture was taken, um, um, I realized that he was getting better and that he was kind of you know coming back uh, when he turned to me. And he just said, you know, son, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. Um, I, I want you to know, you know, I just love you so much. And um, I'm just so pleased at the man that you've become. Um, and who you are. I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Um, and his eyes began to tear up, and my eyes began to tear up. And you know, at 54 years of age, um, even as a you know, new grandfather, my heart is still ambushed by this father hunger. I long for and I enjoy and I'm nourished by the approval of my father. And my guess is I'm not alone. Because you see, I think that we were made with a craving to be blessed by our father. I think there's an emotional need that we have for our father's approval and our father's love. And I believe that this craving that we feel 
for the affection of our earthly father is a sign of a deeper craving and a more profound hunger for our heavenly father. And that's what makes the verses that I want to share with you this morning so nourishing and meaningful. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to the New Testament book of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. We're going to begin there. I'm going to read from two other passages in the New Testament. But we'll start there in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. You'll find that on page 974 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please feel free to take that copy that's in the pouch in front of you and um, just put your name in it and take it home as a gift. These verses are about family. They're about fatherhood. They're about adoption. The Apostle Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And then from John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 18, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The term of endearment. Dear Father. Dear Father. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is God's word. So we're talking about identity here. And we're answering the question, who am I? Who am I? And one of the points that I'm really trying to lean in on is that before we ask this question, who am I? We really need to consider another question, which is this. Who is best qualified to tell me who I am? Who is most credentialed? And, you know, we're seeing that our world has its own thoughts about that. And so, it's very common that you'd get this formula, right? Uh, my identity is my performance plus others' opinions. And that's a dead-end street. And I think most of us, if we really sit in that and think about how fruitless 
that formula is. And yet we all you know, struggle with peer pressure. It's just hard. It's hard. It's hard. But often what happens is then we kind of default then to another formula. We think, well, it's my, my identity is not going to be based on my performance plus others' opinions. We say, we're not doing that. But by default, then, we go to this other uh, really false formula. My identity is my performance plus my opinions. So what I think about myself, I'm the boss of me. And uh, my goodness, songs have been written about that uh, all throughout the centuries. And I'm thinking about that one hymn that comes to us by that great hymn writer in the history of the church, Garth Brooks. Folks call me a maverick. Guess I ain't too diplomatic. I just never been the kind to go along. <laughs> just avoiding confrontation for the sake of confirmation. And I'll admit I tend to sing a different song. <laughs> Old Noah took much ridicule for building his great ark. But after 40 days and 40 nights, he was looking pretty smart. Sometimes it's best to brave the wind and rain by having the strength to go against the grain. That's all for now. <laughs> and that's just where we go, right? It's going to be my performance based on what I think. Who is best qualified to tell me who I am? And we've just been leaning in on just this biblical truth that my identity is not what my performance is plus what others think or my performance plus what I think, but my identity is what God says, period. I mean, there's really only, there's only peace in that formula. And so, you know, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. And these verses, God is calling us to trust in Him. And they tell us that our identity is as adopted children in Christ. Who am I? I am an adopted child of God in Christ. And this is not a metaphor. This is not just, you know, um, well, you're like an adopted son. No, this is a divine reality. This is what is. And, and so our adoption and just the whole beauty of adoption is that it connects with us on a heart level. And here's what I mean. I don't know everybody here, but I know this about everybody here. We're limited. We are limited people. We have limited energy, limited strength, limited intelligence. There's only one area where human beings are unlimited. We all have unlimited desire. We always want more. We always desire more. We desire more time, desire more wisdom, desire more beauty, desire more stuff. We desire more. This is our soul. It's our soul crying out. We, we never have enough. What if the real reason we feel like we never have enough is that God is not yet 
finished giving? What if our unlimited capacity to desire is the mirror image of God's unlimited capacity to give? Well, adoption is how God's unlimited grace meets the soul's unlimited desire. So let's talk about adoption. Let's talk about what it is. Let's define it. And let's talk about how it happens. Who procures it? Who pays for it? Adoption's expensive. And then, what's the outcome? What's the objective? What's the aim of our adoption? What is it? How does it happen? And what's the aim? That's where we're going this morning. First, let's define it, what it is. Well, the word itself The New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language, and in the original Greek, the word adoption, it comes from two words. It means uh, to place a son, to place a son. So adoption is the act or the process of creating a son. So when God adopts us as his children, he takes the initiative to bring us into his family, and he gives us the blessings of sonship whether we are sons or daughters. And, and, and let me just stop right here and talk about that for just a minute because, you know, when we hear in the Bible about God adopting us as sons, uh, the adoption of sonship, you know, our 21st century ears would prefer that the Apostle Paul would say sonship and daughtership. And yet the Apostle Paul is not in the 21st century. He's in the first century. And when you really dig deeply in terms of what Paul is saying, Paul is saying that in Christ we have the blessings that a a first century son would have in a patriarchal family. All of us have those blessings in Christ, whether male or female, whether slave or free, whether Hebrew or Greek. For you are all one in Christ. So actually, where Paul is going is in fact so very inclusive The Apostle Paul uses this word picture of adoption knowing the world in which he lived. Because Paul was a Roman citizen. And the Roman Empire had a very thought through legal protocol for adoption. Um, In Rome in the first century, uh, orphan care or infertility typically weren't the primary reasons which adoptions took place. Adoptions typically took place because a wealthy estate owner, someone from the patrician class, had no heir to the family estate, or an emperor wanted to ensure who would succeed him on the throne, and so that emperor would in fact legally adopt his appointed successor who would then become his legal son. And so that's why Julius Caesar adopted Octavian or Augustus Caesar, who in turn adopted Tiberius as his son. Adoption ensured a peaceful transition of power. And here's something else of interest. The child was typically an adult when adopted. Adoptions in the first century generally weren't infants or toddlers. And for two reasons. Number one, the father, the adoptive father, wanted to make sure that the child would survive childhood. Because back then, uh, many did not. And then the second reason is the adoptive parent wanted to make sure that the adoptee was worthy. 
worthy. And when those two measures were met, adoptions would occur. And so in this legal act of adoption, the adoptee was taken out of a previous situation and put into a new situation, a new relationship, a new family. Uh, His old debts were immediately canceled, and his only obligation was to his father. The adopted son immediately became an heir and at once was as wealthy as his father. And he had the same status as natural-born children. And in turn, whatever debts and liabilities existed in the son's life before the adoption were immediately transferred to the father. And so it's out of that cultural picture that the Apostle Paul says that because of Christ, by grace, through faith in Christ, we have a new father, a new family, a new future with new responsibilities. I mean, it's one thing to be declared innocent and righteous before a judge in a court of law, but it's quite another thing to be invited into the family fellowship of Abba, Father, adoption to place a son. And what's significant is that adoption answers the question, what is your relationship with God? What is your relationship with God? He's my father. He's my father. And yet, how many people answer that question with, what's my relationship with God? Well, I pray. I I, I go to church. I give money. I I go to a missions trip. In other words, we want to define our relationship with God based on what we do for God. When we do that, we move from a relational, familial relationship to a transactional relationship. Well, I'm going to do this for you, and the implication is you're going to do something for me, you see. And once we go there, we start thinking like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that father who had two sons, and the younger son went to the far-off land. But the elder brother stayed home. And when the father welcomed his younger brother back after a, just after his wild life, he became angry and he said to his father, remember what he said? He said, all these years I've slaved for you. And not once have you even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. You see how transactional that is? But here's the deal. Here's the deal. You cannot perform your way into the family of God. You cannot perform your way into the family of God. You can never be worthy enough to qualify for adoption. You can't. You can't WWJD your way into adoption. You can't. Adoption is not contingent on the child's morality. Adoption is contingent on the father's heart. The father's character. And our Father desires us. Soren Kierkegaard uh, was a Danish philosopher and theologian. He's a profound writer. Uh, And he wrote a parable about a kingdom where a common day laborer was summoned by the emperor uh, to his throne. And Kierkegaard said that, you know, this in of itself would be a source of pride to the commoner and the something that the commoner would tell to his children and grandchildren about the day he met his highness, the emperor. But in the parable, the reason why the emperor summoned the commoner was that he wanted the commoner to join his family. You know, I want you to be my son. I want to adopt you. 
Was the commoner excited? No. He was petrified. You see, the commoner was, was going to be content if only to have maybe a little bit of money or a, a signed letter by the emperor or some sort of souvenir from the royal court. He would cherish that the rest of his life and he could show it off to his village and the villagers would ooh and ah and they would envy the commoner for being a guest of the king. But to join the king's family and live at court, that's too close. The commoner would lose his identity as a commoner. And it would make the commoner vulnerable because, you know, everybody in the village knows, well, you're just a commoner. What? You're just like us. Well, our king must be blind or ignorant. If he only knew what we knew, he would never choose you. But that's where they're wrong because they don't know the heart and character of the king. The commoner joins the family not because of his merit, but because of the king's heart, the king's character. And the king wants more than to be an accessory to the commoner's identity. The king wants the commoner's full identity, his life. He wants him to be his child. And so it is with God, our heavenly father, the king. Our heavenly father does not want to simply be an appendage to your life. He wants your life. Adoption. To place a son. That's what it is. Well, how does it occur? Just how does God adopt us into his family? Well, we read that in Galatians 4. Our adoption into our heavenly father's family has been procured and paid for by Jesus, our elder brother. God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There it is. Think back to the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. This father with two sons. And the younger son took the inheritance and squandered it. And then when he came to his senses, he, he you know, came home. He told his father, I'll just be your slave. Start to pay this debt back. Again, transactional mentality. Both sons had transactional mentalities. And the father says, no transactions. You're in my family. It's relational. You're my son. Here's the robe. Here are shoes. Here's the family ring. I will welcome you back as if you never left. And of course, that elder brother was furious. And you know why, don't you? Dad, how could you do that? You're welcoming him back at my expense. That's my ring. Those are my robes. Those are my shoes. But the gospel is that God our Father adopts us through our elder brother, Jesus Christ, the true elder brother. The Father says to me, Randy, I want you at my table. I want you in my family. You're... you're you're my son. And Jesus, the true elder brother, says, I'll pay for it. Randy can have my robe. Randy can wear my ring. Randy can put on my shoes. It's all right. Now, that's a brother. Or as one author said, Jesus was brothering you so that God could father you. Which means that God knew ahead of time to adopt me into his family and he knew what he was getting when he got me. 
was no surprise. That's what Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 says. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. <laughs> that means I wasn't adorable or attractive. It means, Ephesians 2, 2, that I was a son of disobedience. It means, Ephesians 2, 3, I was a son of wrath. And it means, Romans 5, 8 and 10, while I was still a sinner Christ died for me. And I was more than a sinner. I was an enemy. When I was an enemy of God, I was reconciled to him through the death of his son. So you see, God adopted me as his child before I started acting like a child. And the fact of the matter is, I'm an offender right up to the point of my adoption. And I'm an offender after my adoption. So my improved status from enemy to beloved son is just that, an improved status. And Jesus makes this status possible through his sinless life and death and resurrection and ascension and enthronement and ascending of his spirit for us, for us. So can you see why the Apostle Paul would say that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and this not of ourselves, a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. And this also means that my adoption, well, God loves me with the same fervor as he loves his own son. Jesus himself said this in his prayer to the Father in John 17, 23. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Imagine for one minute the welcome that the Father gave his Son after the cross, this tidal wave of love to the Son from the Father. Adoption means he loves you no less. He loves you no less. C.S. Lewis once wrote, all of us have this ache to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off. To be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside. Adoption gets us in. Adoption in Christ. Adoption, what is it? The placing of a son. To place a son. To create a son. How? Through our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And now, to what end? What's the aim of our adoption? Well, our adoption into the family of God is for the purpose of us taking up responsibilities in the family of God. I mean, it's good to meditate on the truth that uh, God loves me because of his character, not my merit. That's good. It's good to reflect about the heart of God for us, that while we were sinners, while I was a child of wrath, while I was a son of disobedience, while I was an enemy... Christ died for me. It's, it's good to sing, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. All of that's good, but that's not the end of it. It's not. The end of it is something Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 36. 
Jesus says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So you see, adoption, the end of adoption is for me to be like my Father. That's the end of adoption. Adoption is not simply to show everyone how willing God is to feel for me. Uh, adoption is not simply for just God to forgive me of my sins and offer me life and forgiveness and joy. God does not adopt me into his family just so that everyone can see that my sin is a fine occasion for him to forgive. If only the meaning of adoption was, I sin and God forgives, let's pray. That's not it. It's really not it. God adopts me into his family so that I will become like him. Be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. And so adoption is an invitation. And even more than an invitation, it is a summons to treat others as God has treated me. Who am I? I am the son of my merciful Father. I am an heir. And so you see, this is not just something that we just trust cognitively in terms of belief in God's word, but we experience this because the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit. You are adopted in Christ. That's why Romans chapter 8 verse 16 says, the spirit himself bears witness to our spirit, that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit, whom the Son sent after his seating on the throne, after his ascension and, and, and death and burial and resurrection, the sending of the Holy Spirit onto his people. The Holy Spirit, Christ's Holy Spirit, bears witness and testifies to our spirit that we belong to God. This changes everything. And listen, the, the most powerful words in the parable of the lost son are not the words that the father said to the elder brother at the very end of that parable. Uh, this son of mine was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. That's not the most powerful words. The most powerful words were the words that the father communicated to the son. Here it is. All I have is yours. All I have is yours. That makes me a son. And that makes me an heir. And that makes me a successor. Which means that my destiny is to take my father's place and share with others the abundant, overflowing, bountiful mercy that the father has lavished on me. Be merciful. Even as your father in heaven is merciful. And his mercies are new every morning. God never gives us day-old mercies. You never get a day-old mercy from God. You get fresh mercy every morning. That's your heavenly Father. Now, what would our church here look like if we left these glass doors and went out into our community fully gripped by both the Word of God and the Holy Spirit testifying to our spirit that all that the Father has is ours. How would that change that difficult conversation you got to have tomorrow morning at 8 that you've been dreading all weekend? How would that change how you serve? How would that change the next mission trip that you go on? 
How would it equip you to, to interact with our community? See? How would that change your past? Your hurts, your habits, your hang-ups. See? How all the Father has is mine. See? See that picture? My dad and me. Listen, listen. I can't keep pointing to my earthly father as an excuse for my life. The invitation to be adopted by God is not merely one where I'm just content being um, a child forever. Our father wants us to grow up. To be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so adoption begins with sonship and is brought to completion in fatherhood as I embrace this joyful vocation of fatherhood. So as the father, I'm free from the need to wander around curiously in the far off country trying to recapture what I thought was a missed childhood. As the father, I grow to realize that my childhood is over and that playing childish games is nothing but a ridiculous attempt to find what only can be found in Christ. As the father, I discover that true joy comes from welcoming home those who have been hurt and wounded on their life's journey and loving them with a love that neither asks nor expects anything in return. Love without expectation. And as a father, I learn to give mercy because I've been given so much mercy by my heavenly father. You see, that's the aim. Mike Iaconelli has written a book called Messy Spirituality. And in that book, he tells a story about a small group of American soldiers in World War II who uh, they had sought out a burial site for one of their fallen comrades. And uh, they were pulling out the next day, and uh, they were wanting to bury their comrade in a nearby churchyard cemetery. And so the sun was setting. They approached the house. They knock on the parish house, and a priest answers. And they asked the priest if they could bury their friend in the cemetery. And the priest said, I'm sorry, that's just for members of our church and um, the priest went on to say, you know, if you want, you can, um, you, know, you, can, you can bury your comrade on the other side of the fence. Um, and, you know, what could they say? They were saddened, but that was, that was it. That was the deal. And so they dug the grave. They buried their comrade, and they left. The next morning, they decided to visit their comrade's grave one last time before moving on. So they went to the churchyard, and they went to the... Uh, uh, the fence uh, area where they thought their comrade was and they could not find his grave. Um, just wasn't there. So they marched over, you know, to the parish house, knocked on the door and said, look, what, what happened to the grave we dug? Um, you know, it was, it was there last night. We dug it and now it's not. And the priest said, the priest said, oh, it's still there. See, after you guys left, um, I couldn't get to sleep, and all I could think about was what I had told you and that you couldn't bury your friend inside our fence. And, you know, I really regretted that. So last night I got up, and I moved the fence. Be merciful, even as your Heavenly Father is merciful. 
And that's the joy of fatherhood. Because there's a lot of messy spirituality in our lives. And God never said to us, hey, shape 